What are some solved problems that people commonly reproduce? You list a few in your post. I think logging is a good one, monitoring. But go ahead. Like, What do you see out there? Every business is, has their own homegrown version of this thing. Well, let me let me first crack my knuckles. <laughs> that's that's literally the uh, the the most interesting part of this whole conversation, and I think the part that most people don't don't want to hear. I think we're going to be ready for. It, are we ready for another Stack Overflow? <laughs> we're, gonna have to, we're gonna have to limit you to sixty seconds and make sure to take breaths. Okay. Hold on to your butts. Yes. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Rollbar. Deploy with confidence more often, spend less time worrying, and more time on improving your code. You can feel safe knowing every error is reported in real time with Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. Welcome back, everyone. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live each and every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Join in on the hijinks at changelog.com community. It's totally free and we have a lot of fun. So come hang with us, be silly, talk JavaScript. What's not to love, right? This episode's a good one. So let's get right into it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Yes, the sound of those Breakmaster Cylinder beats means it's time once again. Time for JS Party. I'm Jared. I'm your friend, and I'm joined by a few of my friends. Amel is here. What's up, Amel? Yo, yo, yo. Happy to have you, as always. And we have a special guest. You may be familiar with his voice. You may be familiar with his avatar. Maybe even his face. His name is Ahmed Nasri, and he's back on JS Party. Welcome back, friend. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me back. So for those who haven't been longtime listeners, go back to episode 107, where Divya and I were joined by Ahmad to talk about modular software architecture. We also have a deep dive on your history, I believe, on the changelog back on the day. That's episode 185. Today, you're back to talk about a new thing, or maybe it's not a new thing. Maybe you've been working on this for 10 years, but a relatively newly written or at least published blog post called Solving Solved Problems. First of all, catch us all up. What have you been up to lately? Well, I've been mostly working from home, as the rest of the world has been. But uh, I've been lucky that I, you know, I have a good setup at home to spend time and work with teams remotely. So I've been spending a lot of my time working on fractional CTO code opportunities that I've been taking on recently, which basically means I get to work part-time for different companies in a CTO capacity. Those companies are typically not ones that are heavily invested in technology, or if they are, they don't have the capacity to have a full-time kind of CTO leadership in place. So I kind of help them out in hiring the right team, looking at their technology investments so far and helping them in the strategy going forward of how things should look like, where to invest more, how to prioritize their work, and kind of grow the opportunity space for other engineering teams to come in and start kind of carrying the torch and leading with it. So that's what I've been spending my time on. And it kind of works out for me working remotely in this scenario, 
because you know it's it's different companies in different locations and i don't have to you know travel back and forth between places i can just do it all from home so i've been lucky in that sense you know with the lockdown and everything else so it kind of worked out so that's what i'm doing right now and that's what i'm planning to do for the next short time or short period of time while i kind of uh you know design some future things and opportunities that i want to build and create mm. and in doing so kind of like the uh leading back to the topic of the blog post uh, a lot of the patterns that I started noticing or know about from previous histories and previous roles and companies, um, I'm starting to see them again and again and again, especially as I'm doing this fractional thing where I spend some time with every, well, a lot of companies. And it's it's odd to me that the patterns are the same, regardless of the company size, regardless of the company's market, regardless of the technology, regardless of anything. The patterns keep looking the same or in the same direction of thinking or investments and in how companies treat technology and how technology teams treat technology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that's kind of led to that blog post. And there's like actually a series of blog posts that I wrote following up that basically talking about how, you know, we're in this world where we have an abundance of access to technology, solutions, libraries, systems, services. And yet, for some reason, every company that I've worked with, at least, whether directly or indirectly, we keep solving the same problems over and over again. Some of those problems are some basic things that you would think by now we would already have a pattern or a solution or answers that we can just copy paste or implement or mm -hmm. buy or adopt that we don't have to spend time on them anymore as developers. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the highlight and we can get into it, but I want to come back to you, see if you have any kind of direction to where you want to take the conversation. So first of all, before we really dive into this like incredible topic of solving solved problems, I want to just take a little interlude. Can we do that, Jaren? Let's do it. <laughs> a little interlude into like my connection with Ahmed, which is that um, we both worked at NPM together. I was an engineering manager. He was a CTO. And Ahmed is like incredibly modest. And I just want to like take the opportunity to embarrass him right now and make him blush and say that like hands down, like, you know, I, I think I want to write a book in the future about all the people who saved the web in some way, shape or form, whose names you don't know. And it's going to take a lot of research to like gather that list together. But it is something that I would like to do. And I will give you a chapter preview of, of something that's going to be in that book, which is like Ahmed's story. Uh oh. So I joined NPM because of Ahmed. Prepare to blush. Right. Like, yeah, because of Ahmed. And he was tasked with a very, I would say, challenging thing which is to like take a dumpster burning like a burning dumpster and like make it stop burning <laughs> like you know and put out the like, fire. it's the impossible task yeah, yeah yeah put out the fire there we go i speak multiple languages so sometimes english is hard so you know big task and i would never willingly walk into a dumpster fire but i did so because of him in the sense that like i have that much respect and like trust in his like vision and his like ability to like make stuff happen. And you can, all you need to do is like look at his bio and record to see like all the awesome things that he's done and is doing. And, you know, anyway, so, and like, I just want to shout out that like the, the year that Ahmed kind of, I think was, was there um, was a very critical year for NPM and really we owe a lot to him. Like we web developers, we users of the web, whatever, like I think owe a lot to him because of his leadership and ability to like kept things going, kept things together in a very chaotic period of time. And because yeah. of that, I feel like Ahmed and I, even though we were like, you know, just you know, knew each other as friends and community members before that, 
him and I kind of went to battle together at NPM along with our other colleagues and like really went through a very, you know, like just arduous task of getting through an acquisition and, you know, again, dumpster fires and right. And, and so I just want to say like, Ahmed, you're awesome. Like you're one of my heroes and mentors and like, we're super lucky. And I, I, I wish more people knew how critical you were to NPM not completely falling apart. And I just wanted to say thank you. That's all. See, it wasn't so bad, right? <laughs> thank you. So anyways, yeah. How do you respond to that, Ahmed? What do you think about that? Oh, do I have to respond? I mean, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's true, though. I'm not even like, it's not even like, you know, a compliment. I mean, I don't, just... I don't want to take for granted the collective effort and the team effort that everybody put in, right? Like, there is no one person that can do anything by themselves in any company, in any team. And, you know, like, all I did was try to bring a couple of, uh, a number of people together who were able to help raise the ships and raise the tide for all the ships. And doing so, we as a team worked together to to kind of achieve what we, what we were trying to achieve and keep the ecosystem that the whole web community and the entire infrastructure of mm-hmm. it, you know, afloat. So I don't take any credit to that. In fact, I would say the credit to the team that the execution arm of anything that we talked about was to you and the team members who actually got that work done. So thank you for doing all that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, clearly, you know, I'm, I'm awesome. I'm also a hero on the web. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. Credit, credit where credit's due. But yeah, I agree. 100%. It was every single person who was at that company till, you know, like, you know, just, you know, from, from inception so till the end. Yeah. yeah, from inception till whatever the evolution of it, it is now. Like, has really really helped shape the web and like everyone is a, is really a hero and yeah i mean it was not an easy place to work lots of challenges and there'll be lots of books about this i mean i certainly want to write a book about it so amel if if i heard you correctly you said you joined because of him i did yeah because he's like this visionary like technical leader who i think really gets stuff done like quite frankly like if you look at ahmed's history he just like has a history of like getting stuff done, driving alignment within yeah. orgs or enabling engineers to like make change. That was one thing I really appreciated about his leadership. Like as somebody who actually worked under him at some point, like, you know, he, he was very like, go for it. You know, you want to do something, do it. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like you, you see a problem, fix it. Like he was not a red tape kind of dude. And like, it's really refreshing to have technical leaders who are both savvy in business and product uh, strategy, but also are like extremely technical. And as a result of being extremely technical, have deep empathy for engineers, right? And so like that empathy for engineers comes from like the fact that engineers hate business process and red tape. And when they want to just do something that's going to save the company a ton of money, actually, they should just do it, Yeah. right? He's trying to change the subject on us. <laughs> Solving problems. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't want to sit here and blush all day. <laughs> right. then, well, I think it's interesting because Ahmed, your your history is in uh, enterprises and startups and small businesses. So you have this like diverse background of company size. And community, a lot of community. Right. But I'm thinking of like the company sizes, the different kinds of companies. Mm-hmm. Amel, you have s- similar Boku, you're at an agency, then you go to a startup, NPM kind of a late stage or a, a flailing startup, and now you're at a larger company, mm-hmm. right? Uh, an enterprise, right? And enterprise, so you have these different, these diverse uh, experiences, different team sizes, different company sizes, different goals. And Ahmed, what you're finding is same patterns, same problems, same patterns. And I think the the short summary of that is, I think 
I've had the privilege of being in leadership positions or executive positions where I don't only look at the technology and the code and the infrastructure, but I also have to look after budgets. I also have to look after people's salaries. I also have to look after sustaining people's salaries and sustaining those budgets ongoing year after year, you know, quarter after quarter. So the dynamic shifts a little bit when you start thinking about, are we making the right choices? Are we doing the right decisions? When it's not just, is this the best library that we can use? Or is this the best framework we can use? Or is this the best system, cloud system we can adopt? It's also like, are we investing money in the right space? Because if I'm going to throw my money at a vendor, like a, a, I don't want to name names, but like big enterprise vendors are going to cost millions of dollars. What happens to the team that I'm paying? Also their salaries. And how does that relationship work together? Am I going to have to hire more people to maintain the product that I'm also spending millions of dollars on? Or I'm going to have all of a sudden no need for the team members that I have because I've adopted, I've shifted all my business processes to a product that can, for whatever shape or form, replace a lot of the functionality that we're doing already. So like those are both hard problems, but also critical problems because we can debate all day long value of frameworks and tools and services and libraries and all that kind of stuff and the shape of our architecture that we want to debate. And trust me, I love that stuff. Uh, if left to my own devices, to my own means, I would probably over-engineer everything because why not, right? Mm -hmm. I love to create new things. I love to experiment with technology. I love to create all these complexity of cloud architectures and challenge existing patterns and create new ones. But at the same time, if I have an accountability and responsibility for people's livelihoods, their salaries, their job functions, and their job growth, I have to be very critical in the way I pick choices of technology, even down to the framework, even down to the process of how we implement code and how do we do uh, automation testing, how do we do deployment, uh, CI, CD, all that kind of functionality. And the patterns that I've noticed, again, in big enterprises, in small companies, in you know, agencies, in outsourcing companies, there is a disconnect between DX, as we were talking about earlier before we started recording, developer experience and user experience. And even though some companies have kind of values and uh, espouse things like we care about the user, we care about the customer and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't really translate to technology and how technology is implemented. Somehow there's this blurry barrier in front of developers to how that actually reflect on the way I do my work. So if I'm a developer, and I'm given a story in a backlog or a task as part of a team to implement a front-end experience or a mobile app or a back-end server or an API or whatever. Yeah, sure, the company has these big values about users first, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter because the code needs to be the code, right? That's how most people think. But the reality is there's this concept of, a you know, as again, as a person who has to own budgets and has to own long-term planning for team members and, and technology, there's a concept of the total cost of ownership of something. If I'm going to make a decision on something, I need to measure the total cost of ownership about it. And to me, that kind of breaks down into five different things. The cost of knowledge, meaning if I'm going to adopt our library, what do I have to expense in terms of time, energy, and dollars to make sure that the knowledge of that library is equally distributed across the team members that I have? And there's a relation there to how big the team and also the relation to how long I need to keep this thing going, which leads to the next one, which is the cost of maintenance. Like, fine, you've adopted a library, you've adopted a service, you've adopted an infrastructure tool, but how long is this going to be going on and how long are you going to be invested in maintaining it and invested in having team members continue to run it or, main, or update it or deploy it or monitor it, whatever the functionality is given the component that we're discussing. 
There's also the cost of the ecosystem, which we're very familiar with in the JavaScript world. Basically, pick the library that has the most contributors. But even in tooling sense or infrastructure sense, you know, if you're going to buy into Kubernetes, for example, you're going to buy into a whole set of other things that you're also going to buy into and pay the cost of, which also leads to the cost of infrastructure. If you're going to adopt a vendor product, cool, you're adopting a vendor product, but is there infrastructure costs associated with that? Most people forget about that when they're doing the choices of technology saying, I'm just going to use Gmail. Okay, you're using G Suite then, which means you have to do everything through APIs. You no longer have access, for example, to you know, the low levels systems of file storage and data storage. Now you have to have tools and libraries and desktop application management for IT teams, right? Like there's all this kind of concepts that people have to measure before they get to the real cost that most people think about, or not the real cost, but before they get to the cost that most people actually think about, which is the cost of adoption, i.e. how long it will take me to implement, right? So when I look at this big picture of the cost of ownership, I look at the way people make their decisions and the way people try to take shortcuts by saying, you know what, I can build a login system myself. It's only a couple of libraries and my cost of adoption is a day's worth of work or two days of worth of work before I go and you know, just deploy it and then I'm done, hands clean. This is it. This is how it costs. And they forget about maintenance. They forget about knowledge sharing. They forget about the ecosystem around it and they forget about the infrastructure involved. Uh, so that's kind of like the preamble to where's those kind of solved problems that exist already and how people try to resolve them or reinvent the wheel around them. And my experience has been also in to like Emma's earlier point of like all the stuff that I was getting able to get things shipped, I get things shipped by simplifying the problem and getting back down to the basics rather than, you know, trying to break things apart and say, hey, let's use this library instead of that. I start with the basic thing of saying, why are we even doing this to begin with? Let's discuss there. And it's their shortcuts and cheaper options to follow. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, Droplets, Managed Kubernetes, Managed Databases, Spaces, Object Storage, Volume Block Storage, Advanced Networking like Virtual Private Clouds and Cloud Firewalls, Developer Tooling like the Robust API and CLI to make sure you can interact with your infrastructure the way you want to. DigitalOcean is designed for developers and built for businesses. Join over 150,000 businesses that develop, manage, and scale their applications with DigitalOcean. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. So, wow, that was intense. And also a ton of, I would say, wisdom packed into a very short soliloquy. Right. I mean, the amount of experience that you need to have to say what you just said, right? Say what you just said, not with anecdotal evidence, but like with real life scenarios. Like that is like, I I totally appreciate that. So like hats off. There's so many things that kind of came to mind, like as you were speaking, you know, my earliest thought was just, you know, I transitioned into being a manager uh, when I joined NPM 
And for me, it was just this interesting shift of like needing to worry about a lot more all of a sudden, you know, and like all of a sudden I was the person that was accountable for delivery, regardless of what my team did. Like I was the one that was like, if things didn't happen, like it was like on me actually, you know, and how I think that shift in responsibility changed the way I thought about trade-offs and the way I thought about like the decisions that we were making, you know, it really gave me a lot of empathy towards, I would say, managers and, and leaders as a whole, because, you know, a lot of times people will ask for something and then their boss will say no. Right. And like the reality is like their boss is saying no, because like their boss has all this other context and all these other trade-offs that they're managing in their head. Mm-hmm. I think where their boss failed, it wasn't that they said no, they, they failed at not explaining the context behind no. Right. And I think for me, that's the missing thing is like one of the biggest muscles I have exercised heavily over the past few years as I've been, I think, aggressively climbing in my career, right? I'm now a principal engineer at a large enterprise company, right? Like it's, it's trade-offs, right? It's uh, trade-off analysis. Like that is mm-hmm. like a very undervalued skill, similar to like even just like your ability to read code or, you know, those are lots of, there's lot skills that are, I would say, undervalued. Trade-offs are foundational because they set the course for all the decisions that you make macro and micro right and so that's a skill that we need to learn we need to kind of like figure out how to codify it so we can teach it like you know because the only people i see who are good at it it's it's from experience and like like that's not good enough right like that's not going to work that's not democratizing information so we can't wait you for know, everybody to burn their hand on the stove. We, before, yeah, 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 yeah. Before they know how to like avoid that pitfall, you know. Yeah, but I have kids, and I know that I can tell them all the logic and reasoning. I can tell them why they shouldn't touch that hot surface. I see, and it actually doesn't matter to them. Yeah, like there's just no, there's not like, well, you have life's experience. You're obviously older than me. You've do, been doing this a long time. You were very reasonable with why you said like it's going to hurt. It's going to really hurt, and you're going to be mad about it. And yet that kid still in them has to actually experience it. They won't not touch it. Yeah, that's totally fair. And so I agree that we need to do better at the knowledge transfer, but there's like this this impedance mismatch where like the information coming across can't actually go in the right hole in order for it to stick until you burn your hand and say, ah, you were right. I should have listened to you, but I had to actually experience it. So it's kind of difficult in that way. It's totally chicken and egg. Yeah, my my approach to that has been in, in leading teams and leading kind of that scenario, you know how in like uh, communication courses or leadership courses, they tell you all about the quote unquote, yes, and uh, when you want to do that. Yeah. And I think that's useless. But I do think no and <laughs> is better because no to your and. point, Emma. I agree. Let's make no and right. Like like the, yeah, the manager who said no without sharing the context. Like no and here's why. Right. Is that what you mean? Yeah. No and here's why. Exactly. Okay. exactly. No and why. Because you can say no all day long and you can be a benevolent dictator for life type of thing. But that doesn't help the person grow. Uh, but if you invest the time in showing them, right? So to your point, Jared, yes, kids are not going to learn until they burn their hands. And the same thing happens with developers and professionals in general. Until they actually experience the thing, they can read about it in a book. They can hear it from a person. They can be shown to it, you know, indirectly, but until they've experienced it, I cannot call myself an expert in something until I've experienced it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the same applies for software development in all aspects and professionals in all aspects. So how do you make that opportunity of the, we're not going to do this because 
it's I know from experience it's bad, but how do we make sure that you don't go into that pitfall or similar pitfalls later on? And that's where the no and context come to meet. Whereas like, and Emma knows this, I'll be like, go go create something, and I'm gonna tell you, you know, some some things to avoid, but go do it, and then we'll see if we're gonna launch it or not. Then we're gonna see if we're gonna deploy it or not. Because if you have the opportunity as a manager or leader to give your team members the time, and the critical point is the time because it's costly, to go and go down that path, get their hands burnt and come back, great, let's do that. That's a great experience for learning as long as you're also holding on to the no. Uh, A lot of people, I think, especially in leadership, kind of like, oh, okay, well, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. And then you go all the way to production. And then it adds more costs and technical debt down the road because now it's too late. We can't change the trajectory, all that other stuff. You got to hold on to the no, but you can also create an opportunity for the end where people can learn and experiment with things. I think that's a, that's a really good compromise uh, to bring back to Jared's point about like sometimes you just have to let your kids get you know, get burnt on their own, right? Like, that's a good, like, here's some guardrails, like, go play and come back, you know, once you, like, yeah, when you have some more d- data points to, to make this decision. But but, but kind of circling back the, to the JavaScript community, right? A community that is, like, probably in most need of trade-off analysis skills and really thinking about ad- adoption because there's so much adoption that happens, right? Like, if you look at like Java world and technology adoption rates for teams and you compare that to like front end JavaScript teams and like how, how often are they NPM installing and saving a new package? Like, you know, like, like every month or, you know, it's just, there's so much change. And because of that, like you really need to understand the trade-offs that you're making when you're picking tools or, you know, picking your stack or whatever, like, a big thing I see is like developers don't focus enough on like the customer, right? So to, to bring back to your earlier point about like, yeah, DX versus UX and that lack of customer focus is what keeps them from building things that only matter to the customer, right? So to, to like, to take it back to your blog post about, let me find that quote, I pull it up. We should only build things that only we can build, right? So that means if you're, you know, Snapchat, you're not designing your own database, right? You're using a database as a service and you're focusing on only Snapchat features, like things that only Snapchat engineers can build. And that's not the case. Like, I think like our bias as engineers, it like, we love solving problems and we are like hungry, hungry hippo for problems. And we want to like make all like, you know, the, the not invented here was a huge problem at NPM. Like we, we reinvented everything. We wrote our own HTTP framework. We wrote our, like, no joke, Jared, like the stories that I could tell you, you know, off, off, off air, <laughs> off air, off air stories that I could tell you, you know, I wouldn't say we, but okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Thank you for that. <laughs> the royal we, I, we. I, with the royal we, we asterisk, AKA not me and not this dude, you know? Um, and so, and so like, you know, not invented here is a thing. How do you keep your engineers focused on the problems that are strictly customer like oriented towards driving customer values, you know, and outsourcing everything else. And for me, like, I see this very similar to like open source code, like in the sense that if you actually like uh, Google did an analysis in 2019 uh, of like all JavaScript code that could be scraped by their bots, right, on the internet. And what they found was the ratio of installed code to authored code, right? So installed code, meaning like third-party dependencies, 
to like authored code, meaning like the code that like that developer wrote was 10 mm -hmm. to one. So for every 10 lines of code, like 10, 10 of those lines are installed, you know, and, and one is written by the developer. And by the way, you, you might be thinking like, wow, that's so bad. Actually, no, it's not. It's actually good. It's very, very good, right? That means open source is working. It means that the open source model is working. We're focusing on things that are unique to our applications and things that only we can build, like Ahmed said, right? But at the same mm. time, like, so that's good. And there's lots of reasons why that's good, especially because, for example, code that you're using from someone else through an open source package is is battle tested. It's 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 had way more like eyes on it. It's better quality, more secure, right? You want to use shared code as much as possible because it's just just better code, quite frankly, right? And so the challenge for me is that like, you know, most engineers are really looking for those hard, interesting problems. And sometimes, you know, they're more interested in, in, in creating their own solutions. And for me, I feel like those folks, we need to redirect that energy into open source. Like, you know, go contribute to a bunch of libraries and solve hard problems for a bunch of tools that other people are already using. But mm -hmm. like, don't like reinventing the wheel at a company is like, it's, it's not only irresponsible, I as an engineer would consider that unethical, like quite frankly, because you're wasting company money and you're neglecting your customer needs. And that's like not cool, you know? Can I push back a little bit on the premise? Because I would broaden it slightly and I wonder what Ahmed thinks about this broadening. So you said we should only build things that only we can build. And I'm with you in terms of like, let's stick to our core competencies, our unique value proposition, and maybe that's what you mean. But I would also say that you should build things where you went through a, an amazing list of these five things that equal the total cost of ownership, right? Well, I would argue that you should build things when the, the net ROI is up, assuming you know the total cost of ownership, building versus buying. So maybe somebody else has built it. But it's actually when you add everything up and you analyze it, it's going to cost you more to buy it than it is to build it. I would argue at that point, and that also assumes that you integrate opportunity costs, right? Because that's the one thing you're losing when you're not working on your unique value proposition, you're working on something else, opportunity costs. But I think if the ROI is up, I think you go ahead and build that thing. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point, especially when you consider that most of the modern tools that we use and the libraries and the systems and services are actually built by companies that are not software technology uh, platform builders. They're, you know, Airbnb created a number of tools that we all use and, and yeah. lot for like Envoy and others and Enzyme for React and a number of other things. It's, Netflix is a great example of this. They just created a whole bunch of things and they're all open source. They're not even, you know, paid. They're just created them and shared them with the community. Right. I mean, you would argue that, well, if Netflix business is to build, uh, you know, a streaming platform, why aren't they using, you know, I don't know much about streaming platform. I remember Red from back in the day. I think it was built on Java and Python. Falcor. They built their own. Uh, remember right. Fal they, they built their Falcon or Falcor. Was it? Yes, yeah, their own container environment, right? Right. So if you want to take the argument literally. Yeah. Falcor with their own else. React alternative. I don't know. They built a yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They right. built a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe but, too much. but that's actually, the, <laughs> the, I use the Infect example as a real example that yeah. actually fulfills the, the statement that I'm making, which is. Nobody else at that scale and nobody else at that level of infrastructure demand existed at the time. And nobody else was better positioned to go and actually experiment with things that are not core to their quote-unquote business, mm -hmm. uh, but in fact do have the positive ROI to their business. 
who else is going to go and build high-performing HTTP systems and services like they did, right? Who's going to go and actually create a level of chaos engineering technology and tooling? Uh, I mean, there was others, but nobody did have... There's a number of companies you can count on your fingers that have the capacity to test across a large distribution and a critical level systems that they have to operate like Netflix did. So they're very well known for their chaos engineering tools. They're very well known for the HTTP servers and tooling around that mm-hmm. because they were they had the right environment to go and improve on something that existed already. But I can tell you, and I don't know this, this for a fact, they didn't go and reinvent a browser, right? They didn't go and reinvent fundamental things that otherwise are available for them and they could have done them. And maybe they did some over-engineering in some areas. I don't know about the front-end framework that you mentioned, but maybe that was the wrong choice. Maybe they got carried away. But ultimately, if there is this kind of foundational belief in developers, hopefully that's the one I try to instill in my teams of, if this is not something that's going to help you and help the business, and if it's not core to what we're actually here to solve, then why would we even bother doing it? Let's go and see if there are solutions that have most likely lower cost of building and adopting a total cost of ownership than the salary that I'm paying you as a developer, not just for building it and getting it to adopt to deployment, but also to maintain it indefinitely. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen for the cost of knowledge when you inevitably leave and other people have to come in? And that's actually what happens to a lot of internal projects in these companies. They either have to go down the path of being gifted to a foundation or to a community to maintain them, because guess what? The people who started them are no longer there, and they never invested in the cost of knowledge and the cost of maintainer distribution across the internal team. So... Oh, yeah, this great library, great tool, great framework. But guess what? The people who built it at the time are no longer there. And the company is probably not using it anymore. Mm-hmm. But hey, they're now. it's now in the public. Now it's an open source tool. Now somebody has to maintain it. So if you don't consider that total cost of adoption when you're creating, but also when you're, when you're maintaining. maintaining something and yeah. the knowledge cost around that and investing in it, what company is going to have a budget? Like try to have that conversation with the CFO saying, I'm going to invest in dedicated time for developers and engineers, for everybody, old and new, new hires or old developers, to actually go and learn every single tool that we have. And every time we have to hire somebody new, we have to spend at least six months with them of just training them on the tools. That never is a line item in anybody's budget. That is skipped into like practices and culture and those type of things. They're never right. actually measured as a cost. A CFO, if they if they see you doing that, they'll call you, you know, irresponsible. You're not using your team members' time properly because they don't think of it that way. They think of inputs and outputs. You know, you're investing time in people, sure, training up, you know, knowledge management of just getting them to know the company, but thereafter, you don't need to spend more time on that. They should be experts by now, right? But we know in engineering, that's not the case because you're adopting new things, building new things all the time. So like ideally, you have the 10, 20% of everybody's time on just learning what changed last week because the code changed, the API surface changed, the libraries that we maintain internally changed, whatever it is that changed. People have to actually spend time, learn that stuff. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it just becomes a centralized piece of knowledge within whoever built that thing, whether it's a team or a person. Um, and then the other team or the other person loses that context, loses that ability to understand right. why that change happened, what actually changed. And then when they inevitably inherit that a bug or an issue in that system, in that library, they have to spend a ramp up time to get familiar with everything that led up to this before they're actually effective in making a fix or an improvement. That that sounds like my entire time at NPM. Like I was just like, lear- like, and not just mine, every single new person. We just did so much archaeology before we could do anything. And that's like a real thing. Like, like, so the whole change management that Ahmed is talking about is like, 
it's actually a, another one of those things like similar to trade-offs, but like we don't really seem to value very much, you know, it's never something that we build into our cadences or we never had a budget for that time, you know, of change management and um, like knowledge sharing and and really like the, 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 the core output of actually doing that is that you kind of reduce the hero culture within your company. Um, I was actually literally just talking about this with a coworker. I was like, wow, my new job, which by the way, is at Indigo. We should link that. Um, I work at Indigo and solving really cool, hard problems for like the planet. You can read about us. We'll talk about that maybe on another show. For the Canadian listeners, it's not Indigo Canada, <laughs> which not is Indigo. A, yeah. an online bookstore. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yes, yes. Indigo AG, but at Indigo Ag. Yeah, we're an agriculture technology company. It's also not Indigo, the online flight booking. No. Indigoag.com. We'll link it up. Yeah, it's named after like Indigo, like the plant. Anyways, so that, that being said, um, at Indigo, we don't, we don't have a hero culture. I've never been in an engineering organization that didn't have a hero culture. Meaning there's a lot of flexibility and fluidity between engineers and like th throughout a given product, right? So I work on transport. We're like building, we're currently building like Uber for agriculture, but like in a, in, you know, within the next year, we're going to go air and land. So we're going to be bigger and better than Uber, especially on ethics. You know, so we, we have so much fluidity, like teams, like backend engineers, front end engineers, what data, whatever, like people move around, they jump in where they can. And the reason why they do that is because like, like there just isn't the siloing of knowledge. Everybody's aware of change and like, you know, that you can't understate how, how important that is to, to an org, because when you have hero culture, what happens is you have this bus factor, right? So this one person is on vacation and all of a sudden nobody can get any work done. Right. Um, and like, that's like not healthy for an org, you know, just, just the same way that you would diversify your stock portfolio. Right. You want to make sure that like you have lots of engineers at your company that are capable of doing lots of, lots of things, not just one thing. Right. Mm. Well, I mean, I think it's something to Jared said earlier, like we also, as developers and engineers, we enjoy hard problems uh, or solving hard problems. And sometimes that kind of take it to the extreme, which is like the hero culture and not invented here world. But fundamentally, that's why we're all in software technology, because we enjoy solving problems and we enjoy creating solutions, which are technically two different things. And I would go back to something I think Carl Simpson said yesterday on Twitter. He had a long tweet thread that I, it was a good thread, you recommend reading it. We can link it. Mm -hmm. We should link it, yeah. Talking about the tyranny of complexity and how we fundamentally, again, as engineers and developers, and some of us more than others, have this kind of innate an enthrallment and thrill and enchantment by complexity. And we want to just dive in deeper into it. And some of us enjoy it so much that they just want to create more of it, right? So that's kind of the risk and danger. And when you're working, especially when you're working as a team, you're going to be considerate and empathetic to the other team members that are currently next to you, but also to the future team members that are going to come after you. Are we actually making the right choices here? Are we investing in the right thing? And sure, you can create the greatest deployment system, the best library tooling, the greatest kind of internal frameworks that you want to create. But if you're not investing, again, in that total cost of ownership, specifically knowledge and maintenance, you're basically, you know, putting the middle finger to the people who are going to come after you because you're probably not going to be in the same job forever. You're not going to be maintaining the same thing forever. You're going to either switch teams, switch jobs, switch companies, and who's going to take care of this when you're not around? Even if you're passionate about it, if you're really driven around about it, chances are you're not going to be there forever maintaining this this thing that you've created or this uh, uh, investment that you've made. 
So how do you lay the foundations for the people who are going to come after you? And typically that falls into the management to solve that problem, somebody else's problem now. But that's why I say it's the no and culture that is operating, uh, operating around. We're going to make sure you know we're making the right choices and investing in the right things and not reinventing the wheel and not solving problems that are already solved and kind of rebuilding things whenever we can. And I think this is also potentially influenced by these big tech companies or, you know, even small ones like NPM, where on the outside looking in, people all say, oh, company X is building this and this tool and I use it all the time. They must have the best engineers in the world. They must be doing, you know, R&D all the time. They must be creating the best in class tooling and things. And we should totally use their tools. We should totally use their solutions or open source things that they've created. But the reality is I've seen firsthand in many companies, not just the one you're thinking, that when you go on the inside and you see things, it's usually lacking empathy to you know future developers and lacking planning of how we're going to maintain and, and scale work. And it's just ch- shiny object syndrome where we're chasing things and building stuff and tweeting about it and making a blog post and like, look how cool this framework that I've created is. And I'm no longer working on it, right? So... I think from the outside in, a lot of people should look more critically into companies and what they create and what they do. And to use a reference example that I used earlier in a positive sense, like a lot of the Netflix projects that they created years ago are no longer maintained and or they've abandoned them and or you're not going to get improvements on them because they're too busy doing other things. Well, what happened? What happened is the shiny object syndrome happened. They're probably building another project now, another open source thing now that you're probably not going to you're not going to see for a while, but then when you see it, you'll be amazed by it because they made it sound the best thing in the world. And then six months after that, they're not going to maintain it anymore. And now you're stuck because you've implemented it thinking that this is the best in class technology. Summit is right around the corner. It's the biggest React conference in the world and it's being held on October 15th and 16th in the cloud. There will be amazing speakers like Kent C. Dodds, Jen Luker, Gishermo Rauch, and Paris Athena. There will be virtual networking with live chat rooms and video Q&As, plus remote after parties and gaming tournaments so you can get your Quake.js on. Learn all about it at reactsummit.com. Tickets start at $0. Once again, that's reactsummit.com. Register today and tell them you heard about it on JS Party. All right, Ahmed. So that that was a lot to digest. And really, like, one of the things I, I kind of want to call back to something earlier that you talked about around refactoring and application maintenance specifically. I was a guest uh, back in the day when I was just a regular old person that wasn't a panelist or anything. You know, I was just a just a wee little gal. You hadn't arrived at a conference. Yet. Yes. No, no. Yeah, I hadn't arrived. Yeah, no. I was a guest on an incredible podcast called Changelog. Hmm. Like and subscribe, everybody. Heard of it. And Changelog. Yeah, heard of it. Like literally the best technology podcast ever. It was such an honor to be a guest on that show. And it was Appreciate a really that. great episode. Episode 362. You should listen to it. Machine powered refactorings notes. with ASTs. I remember machine powered refactoring. Yeah. Yeah. And a point that I brought up in that episode was how important it is to learn how to maintain an application. 
right? And for me, the real heroes are not the like proto, you know, the folks who get to work on greenfield apps every year and prototype, you know, like like the Deverell syndrome of right. prototyping culture that we seem to have like uh, somehow valued. I, I don't know how that happened, but like, you know, it's not just about rewriting your front app front ends every year or two it's about like okay how do we maintain this legacy application and ref- and learn how to refactor from within learn how to continue driving value you know in production and consequently driving value for our customers while still making improvements incrementally right that is an art that is a software craft that is a skill and it it is a hard engineering problem and for me as somebody who's kind of a problem junkie like i just i love solving problems the harder the better like that's the stuff i live for right like i'm not interested in greenfield like i'm interested in like oh great how do we lift and shift this legacy application like that is like the the fun problem for me because it's about that makes you unique help yeah helping the business i know i'm very unique well you know and oh, we currently that. not hire not not hireable right <laughs> <laughs> happily employed at go. indigo again and we're also hiring by the way but you know like for me, like it's about helping the business not skip a beat, right? Because what's the most important thing? Your customers, right? And so like, how do you help the business not skip a beat? You refactor from within. And like, so taking a team and parallelizing them to like work on some rebuilding of your platform that like no one is going to use for months and months and months, like it's just silly, right? So like, the whole fact that there's like the next gen team and the current gen team and they work in parallel doesn't make sense, right? Like we should just be refactoring that same application and continuing to drive value forward, you know? And so, Uh and that's a skill I just feel like is just completely not only lost, it's just not even appreciated. Like, you know, but, but the reality is like looking at your blog post, you're talking about enter enterprise, right? Enterprise has aging software. Enterprise has big aging software, lots of customers and zero opportunities to, to for risk, right? Like, or zero, not opportunities, zero, uh, what's the word? Appetite. Appetite for risk, right? So yeah, that, zero risk tolerance. Zero yeah. risk tolerance, there we go, right? So what happens? Is Node.js going to be like Cobalt in 20 years, right? There's good reason for zero risk tolerance in these oh, type of, of businesses, and we should probably start there. Right. If you're a financial institution with people's livelihood and dollars and banks, you have zero risk tolerance. Yeah. That's why they're still running on mainframe systems and Java applications from back in 20, 30 years ago. Who knows what that, whatever hell is running on there? I don't even know. Yeah. Um, I know I've had friends who worked in financial systems and financial institutions. They're still running Cobalt. They're still running all these things. I have I have a founder story from a friend of mine who's a founder who told me about the time he worked with a uh, 20 years ago in his youth when he worked with a local Canadian banking conglomerate and how he kind of carried servers for his appliance that he built for them in his you know small car back and forth so he can build those servers in the data center and 20 30 years later they're still there they're not going anywhere and they keep asking him to come in and you know be paid money and lots of money just to support them and maintain them and he's not going to do it but there's a good reason for that the reason is if you're a consumer and the bank loses your money or your transactions you will go nuts and you will file a lawsuit and you will complain and you're not going to be happy you might miss your rent you might be kicked out of your home that is not a compromisable scenario you want to be in as a software business or a software company or a company that relies on software 
I've worked in the telecom space. Similarly, in the telecom space, there are things that you just cannot have a tolerance for risk in them. There's no move fast and break things because it's the cellular network. It's the infrastructure that people rely on for communication. It's the, you know, whether it's, you know, talking to your family or calling 911. You don't want to mess with that. So there are good reasons for what people complain about, which is, all oh, this technology is old. All these systems are unmaintainable. Oh, I don't know how to maintain this thing. It's just so badly written. Yeah, maybe at the time they didn't make the right choices and, you know, they didn't invest in progressive enhancements and, you know, refactoring forward. But you can't just come in and say, I'm going to rewrite everything in JavaScript because that's the language I'm familiar with and put everything on React because let's just refactor <laughs> all our front, our front ends into, you know, uh, single page applications. Yeah, because Twitter told me so, right? That's the thing. Like, like mm-hmm, because right. I saw it on Twitter, exactly. Twitter driven cool. or conference driven development. That's 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 my favorite. Um, you know, <laughs> okay. So here's the thing. I have a theory that startup culture has leaked into our engineering culture, right? In the sense that the reason why enterprise is so risk like averse is because they have customers, right? Most startups are like freemium, we sort of have customers, we're kind of burning a lot of cash, we don't maybe know what we're doing, and yeah, YOLO. Really, like, enterprise gets a bad rep, but enterprise just means we're a successful company that has customers in the wild, right? Right. And so enterprise, quote-unquote, enterprise dude, like a term that I've personally coined because, like, enterprise dude is, like, a real persona in it in the engineering world because enterprise dude is like always on the like the the, the least supported version of a tool right because they do like enterprise dude just like <laughs> the enterprise dude is like i can't upgrade my system i can't upgrade my dependencies <laughs> i have to go through like legal review i've met this dude yeah i have to go through legal review i'm sorry right so anyways so all these systems are there to protect our users and again like bringing the whole thing back to our users, right? So this makes sense. And so like this need for you as an engineer to have a skill of like, how do I drive value forward in production? How do I continue uh, incrementally updating a legacy app that's running in the wild? Like these are tremendously Mm -hmm. valuable skills. Like the things that you learn, the techniques that you learn, like they're invaluable. And I can tell you that the web is aging, and we have a lot of aging infrastructure and we're going to need a lot of people who know how to refactor. Like, while, while, like, it's like the difference between a mechanic and a heart surgeon is that a heart surgeon does their job while the engine is still on. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. your surgeon doesn't like, the engine is if you're human. in surgery, they don't like That's another difference. kill you, do the thing and then bring you back to life, right? You're still living, right? That's the thing, right? So a mechanic gets to turn the car off. It's hot module replacement. Yeah, car- exactly. That's a great analogy. A-, a cardiovascular surgeon doesn't, right? That's actually a very good, very good example because there's no surgeon. You won't take a surgeon seriously if he's going to say, <laughs> I'm just going to replace your heart instead of trying to fix it. Exactly. Right? Or replace right. your kidney without trying to understand what the problem is. Oh, you're just your kidney is too old. We better, you know, we better put React in there instead because <laughs> oh, uh, it's just React. too old, and I don't want to bother. Show title it. right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Replace but your, you know, replace your kidneys with React, everybody. <laughs> now again, to quote somebody from Twitter who I've been following, and he's done a great, great job recently. Michael Jackson, uh, who maintains not the package. singer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> mm. 
not not the, not not the singer and the terrible person. Uh, no, the good person, Michael Jackson, is actually a really great guy. Incredible engineer, by the way, who's another hero hero of the web in many ways. Right. So he talks a lot about actually also yesterday. Why is everybody having revelations yesterday on Twitter? I don't know why. It's a good day. He was talking about like how he can, you know, he's willing to help companies and people. And I think maybe uh, not seriously, but like just as a statement of just being able to improve your existing technology, your existing, you know, server side rendered applications. Maybe it's written in PHP, maybe it's written in Python, who cares? There's a lot of mileage you can get out of what you already have. And just doing some optimizations with things like, you know, browser caching and headers management for the HTTP and CDNs and all of that without having to, you know, throw it all out and adopting a whole new technology. Like I said, total cost of ownership. It's not just about replacing the front end with React. It's about the total cost of ownership that comes with that. Knowledge, training, maintenance, ongoing, right? Ecosystem maintenance too. Exactly, exactly. All of a sudden, it's not just, you're not just adopting React, you're adopting Webpack. You're not just adopting Webpack, you're adopting Rollup. You're not just adopting Rollup and Webpack, you're also adopting bundling and bundle splitting and all these topics that are great and useful, but are you paying the cost for it? And are you measuring that impact to your team? Whereas you can actually get a lot of mileage with improving just performance rendering and on the back end that you're already using. And guess what? The user doesn't care. There's no user in the world that's going to go and open up, right click on your website and saying, hmm, are they doing bundle splitting properly or not? Right? <laughs> You've never met me. Like nobody's going to judge you on that. I don't know about you, but I, I certainly <laughs> judged websites by um, the net, my network activity. <laughs> And yet, if the product is doing what it needs to do, you're probably still paying. I'm being facetious here. But that's a good example. We as a developers, we criticize technology a lot. Of course. We still use it if it's valuable. I'm still paying for GitHub. I'm still paying for AWS. I'm still paying for a lot of things that I don't necessarily like or agree with the way they implemented things. Sure. Yeah. So to go back to the idea of focusing on what only you can build, what are some solved problems that people commonly reproduce or reinvent the wheel, so to speak, that are out there. You list a few in your post. I think logging is a good one, monitoring, but go ahead. Like, What do you see out there? Every business is, has their own homegrown version of this thing. Well, let me let me first crack my knuckles. <laughs> that's, that's literally the, uh, the, the most interesting part of this whole conversation. And I think the part that most people don't, don't want to hear. I think we're going to be ready for, it, are we ready for another stack overflow? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to limit you to 60 seconds and make sure to take breaths, okay? Hold on to your butts. <laughs> yes. Well, let me ask you this. How many times have we implemented or re-implemented authentication on login? OMG, every single time. Every single time? Every single time. Has there ever been a company or a team or a project that you ever worked on that you didn't have to start there? Yeah, no, no. I think everything should be as a service, but... Yeah. Right. Before getting to the business logic and to the actual thing that you want to build, you have to start with these things like authentication, logging, deployment, infrastructure. Um, you haven't even built the thing that you're excited about, that idea that you had in the middle of the night that you want to build. You haven't even gotten to that. You have to start with those things before you get to the actual meat of what you're delivering on your build. When you say authentication, you're referring to like how I hash a password and stuff like that. You're not referring to the actual sign up and uh, login flows because those things are often very unique and actually customer experience as well. But why? Why? Why because do they the, have to be unique? Because the first thing that people visit when they visit your web app is how do I sign up and use this thing? And if that's just a, 
uh, the same exact thing that everybody else is doing. There's no advantage there. But not not from a visual perspective. There, sure, they can be different. But every single website you've signed up on has wanted a username and a password or an email and a password. And they might ask you for your full name. And then what? Then it's just profile data or profile information. But every sign-up process looks exactly the same from a data management and an interaction between a backend and a front-end. Sure, it looks different because everybody has their branding, but that flows the but same. But isn't that implementation of, auth- of login, of sign-up? Like that's, that's what people are building. They're not rebuilding, how do I hash the password? How do I send the forgot password email? But they're doing that as well, right? So it all, people look at it as one big piece instead of separating the concerns. I just, I, I want to bridge the world that you are in, Ahmed, and the world that Jared is in, right? So Jared, yeah. like imagine if, like, so so offflows are super standard, right? There's like a standard set of handshakes that need to happen in a standard order and like hashing and all of that is pretty standard, right? Like, but but ultimately the people are oftentimes doing that manually. Uh, I'm happy to see services like Auth0 start to kind of take off and they're getting legs, right? But they aren't used enough, right? Is kind of the point that she's saying. But to your to your point, uh, Jared, about like customer experience, imagine if like this was a standard, this was a spec. Login was a like as was a spec, right? And imagine if that spec had an optional onboarding workflow that you could just insert like a module, right? Here's my onboarding workflow. Insert onboarding during this parts of the handshake. Done, right? Then the only thing that developers have to focus on is their unique value prop, which is their unique onboarding information. And that everything else is like as a service, battle hard, but battle tested code. And with that standard, yeah. with that standard comes the best in class security, the best right. in class right. exchange of token mechanism that a lot right. of people screw up. But weren't you just saying earlier that we think all these tech companies are best in class, but they're actually just engineers like <laughs> us? Of course. No, no. Well, well, it's a Google sanitation. And now I'm supposed to outsource my authentication to some startup who maybe disappear tomorrow. Going back to the principle, though, is your business authentication or is your business Snapchat? My business involves how I sign up people to use it. You still own the data. I don't see much complexity in that. Like we're talking about probably 300 to 500 lines of code. I've, I've done a lot of consulting and I build this flow often. Everybody has their own little... Their own little thing they want to do. No, let's skip that step. Let's let's do that. Let's not have pass. Our website does not have passwords, for example. So, what we're talking about, like a very small thing. Couldn't it be a modular spec, though? Like if the browsers implemented it, I'd be all about it. Ah, but hold on, that's that's exactly it. We're talking about a small thing, but what's the total cost of ownership of that small thing? And do companies actually invest in the knowledge management and the training and the ongoing maintenance of it, or is it just it's built and it's there? Well, is there a lot of churn in that? There is not a lot of churn on that either, in terms of the actual implementation. No, but there's churn in the people who built it. There's churn in the people who built it. Do you actually spend the time every time a developer comes to your team and actually say, here's why and what and how we build the authentication on the login flow with, and actually carry them through, even though they may never never touch it, because they might at some point, Mm -hmm. right? Or they might, worse, they might challenge it and say, let's just reinvent it or build it differently. Right, so the business value that you've carried forward and and doing the implementation that you've built or building the technology that you've built, whether it's logging or authentication or monitoring, if you have a good reason for it and it's part of your cold value proposition, i.e., only building the things that you can build in your business in your context, great. But if you're not investing in that end-to-end total cost of ownership of it, at some point, you know, to your point, Jared, you're a consultant. Some other consultant is going to come in. It's like, well, this is not good enough. We're going to rebuild it. And that's the cycle a lot of, especially enterprises, get stuck in most more so than startups. Mm-hmm. Whereas startups, it's more of the, 
oh, well, I guess I have to create an login system. I don't have the budget to go and, you know, uh, use a platform or a provider. I'm just going to build my own. And you're kind of not going to do the proper hashing. You're not going to do the proper uh, cryptographic uh, algorithms that are needed. Or perhaps you're doing silly things like if the user asks for a password reset, you're just sending it in plain text or anything of those sort. Right. Well, when we talk about modular, those things are not what I refer to as like a, lo- a sign-up flow, right? Those are libraries. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to re-implement Bcrypt, for right. example. So I think we need to talk about like what scale we're referring yes. to these things. Like at a certain point, I got to handle my logging, right? Maybe I'm just I'm just pushing the syslog and then I have some third-party service or maybe I'm writing to a file and I'm backing that up. Like there's a lot of nuance to like where you actually draw these lines, and so I think that that's part of the challenge too. Like, wh- how much do we bite off? I think maybe when you say that's a solved problem, you're inferring that you bite off zero. And I think that a lot of times you bite off a little bit more than that. Well, like let's do some real life examples, right? Like Heroku actually was the you know premier example of don't worry about infrastructure, we'll take care of it. Just push your code, and that changed a lot of lives, to be honest, and a lot of yeah. way of businesses being actually started without the complexity of IT and infrastructure. Um, you see that example being carried forward in a lot of SaaS providers and tooling today. Uh, you see things like Firebase, greatly successful. That actually started out as, I think it was called Parse by Facebook back in the day, uh, where it's like, don't worry about databases and infrastructure and APIs. Here's a document-based API-ready RESTful interface with authentication that you can actually use in your mobile apps on your web apps to store and retrieve data for your users. Great. For front-end developers and for our, uh, for back-end developers even, that became a saving grace. I've used Parse for an actually a massively distributed project that we, we deployed back in MashShape. Um, Firebase carried that torch forward. Now they're kind of like the leaders of that. Hoodie is worth a mention as well. They provided the same solution. They didn't require you to learn about database engines. They didn't require you to, to learn about deployment infrastructure or any of that stuff. They're providing value in that sense. And mm-hmm. I can focus on building the things that only I can build in my company and my team, which is the value proposition for our business. Um, there's a number of services like that. Even nowadays, nobody launches and deploys a MySQL database or a Postgres database. We just use RDS. We just use Google Cloud Storage, or, or, whatever the heck or whatever, Microsoft yeah. offers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's it's no what? longer it's no longer debatable, right? No, like if somebody comes to you today and say, "I want to launch my own database and manage it on an EC2 server and do the sharding and scaling and all of that," you would just say no. And it's not going to be an acceptable conversation. And I think collectively, all these kind of examples that I mentioned, logging, authentication, whether you look at it as a modular level or whether you look at it as a kind of wholesome buy-in to a solution, we need to build everything ourselves and I can do it better. Sure, I can do it better and maybe I will, but that's not part of the job that I'm being paid for. And that's not part of what the team cares about right now. And or that's not the value proposition that I'm in this company or this business to deliver on. So Drawing that line and finding out where I want to invest my time as an individual and as a team mm-hmm. uh, is really what makes that difference on how deep you go. Is it per library or is it per service provider or is it per vendor that you can give everything to, like, you know, the IBM appliances, just buy those and put your entire enterprise on them, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did that change your mind, Jared? I have something that I want to share to, with Jared that may change his mind, but but it's really actually to answer a point that you brought up earlier, Jared, right? You're like, hey, what if this startup's tool that I'm using just disappears? What happens then, right? And, yeah. and there's and there's two stories I want to share with you. One is our my, my dear friend, Gleb Bahmatov, who's the VP of engineering at Cyprus. 
The first thing that he did when he joined the company is like, okay, cool, let's start working on open sourcing Cyprus. Six months later, they open source Cyprus. And the value there was like, we're going to open source Cyprus. How are we going to get people to adopt our tool if it's just some closed source startup that's like maybe going to go away? Right? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. they open sourced it to, to actually give it more credibility and also to like empower, like they kind of separated the business from the tool. You know what I mean? The tool is mm-hmm. a free open source thing that you can use. The business is like, management of the tool and usage of the tool at scale, right? With their dashboard. And I think that's like a, that's a model I would encourage more software as a service companies to adopt, right? Because it just makes it easier for people to actually feel more comfortable about adopting. Like, like I, like if you're just some rando company that's going to like disappear, right? Like if you're a new company that actually is trying to solve a hard problem and doing it well, but like, I don't know what your funding runway is. And so as a big enterprise, like how am I supposed to trust you with my business, right? Like, anyway, so that's one point. The other point is around something that you you said, Jared, that was uh, about like, yeah, uh, rando startup disappearing, right? So one way I kind of handle bringing in third-party code, that's, uh, I would say, something that I sometimes consider swappable code, right? For example, logging is a great analogy. For me, I'm not loyal to any logger. The only logger I'm loyal to is the fastest one and the one with the least amount of overhead, right? And the way you Uh manage your no loyalty, best person wins kind of tooling is through creating your own abstraction around it, right? So you can wrap your logger API. And what that buys you is once you wrap your logger API, you know, your import of this third-party library is just in one file, but your API usage throughout your code base is your code, right? An API that you wrote Mm -hmm. that should be stable. And so the cost of actually swapping is low, right? I just want to kind of point that out as like another way to mitigate that risk. And so, so there you go, Jared. Boom, mic drop. You got me. I want to also like <laughs> reference uh, some history I've had like sure. in these kind of conversations in the enterprise. Because in the enterprise, again, there's zero risk policies and the tolerance for it. Um, it even kind of makes its way to some somewhat logical things that we should replace and we should extend. So especially when it comes to cloud providers. And I've heard this a lot in the enterprise, like, oh, we can't trust to put our data on GCP or Google or Amazon or whatever. It's like, well, what if they go down? Like, what if your data center goes down? How is that any different, right? <laughs> uh, and like, I hate to use the slippery slope example, but like th- those conversations just keep on coming up again and again. It's like, well, I don't want to use a vendor. Oh, I don't want to use a third party. Well, I don't want to use this. And it just, it's it's a re- rational way of thinking for sure. I think it's about trade-off conversations and oh. ROI and total cost of ownership at the end of the day. Because if the, the cloud vendors really want your business. They're subsidizing half their stuff. Trust me, we're not actually paying half the cost of what we should actually be paying for any of these SaaS or cloud services. Yeah. And that's working out for our industry very well right now. We should be paying thousands of dollars for GitHub right now. But you know, Microsoft is subsidizing a lot of it. Great. I'm going to use it. And I'm going to take advantage of it. They're definitely taking advantage as well because they're analyzing every single line of code you write, but that's beside the point. Uh, my focus is on the business and making the business work. Same thing with any of those choices that you have to make with vendors, with tools, with third parties. Are you willing to take the the compromise and are you willing to spend the cost lower now, but 
end up accelerating your team and you can focus on other things that accelerate the team. And then later on, when you're successful and you have the time and the energy, maybe go back and re-implement those things the way you want to implement them. But perhaps considering the total cost of ownership, you're actually making it sustainable, making it longer lasting and actually investing in a budget that can carry well beyond as a legacy, well beyond your team and yourself being there. Very cool. Well, that is all the time we have for today. A fascinating discussion. We'd love to hear from the listeners as well. Your thoughts on these things. Amel, thanks so much for hanging out and partying with us. Ahmed, thanks for coming on the show, sharing your hard-won wisdom over all of these years. We truly appreciate you. That's Jay's Party for this week. We'll talk to you next time. What to build and what to buy is an ongoing conversation in the software world, and we love hosting that conversation right here on JS Party. What do you have to say on the matter? Leave a comment on this episode on changelog.com. Follow the discussion link in your show notes and let us know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to send it to a friend or colleague who might enjoy it also. They'll thank you later, and I'll thank you right now. Special thanks to the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for the Beats and to our longtime sponsors, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's all for now. We'll talk to you again next week. Everybody, if you got what it takes, cause I'm Curtis Blow and I want you to know that these are the boys. That was a good stack overflow there. Yeah. 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 I was like, I was like, you're in stack overflow mode. Can you finish it? Can yeah. you fold together and finish the sentence? Yes, he finished it before he finished it. I was like, I was like, stack overflow. Ahmed is stack overflowing. This is like where it's like time to call your therapist. Right. <laughs> I'm over here stack overflowing just trying to pay attention, let alone having to say the words. Dude, same. I, I stacked overflowed like 20 seconds ago, okay? Just parsing, parsing, parsing. <laughs> Done. Can't handle. Too many threads. In my defense, the Zoom notifications for the chat wasn't showing up. So. Ah, no, that's all oh, right. Okay. No, that was a perfect <laughs> that's ending. Okay. It was just That was fun. a good ending, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just funny. That's all. No. <laughs> my ingest that's algorithm nothing. needs a rewrite. Any JavaScript nerds want to get wrecked?